Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, my name is Josh Surratt. I'm the campus pastor here at the Long Point campus. And uh, man, it's already been an awesome weekend. We're glad that you guys are with us. And I want to welcome those of you that are joining us at an offsite campus. But here's the deal. Usually I'm the one that welcomes them or whoever's speaking. Long Point campus, would you help me? Let's welcome these guys that are joining us at an offsite campus. We're glad to have you guys. I love the fact that we live in a time where we can worship on so many different locations and be a part of one big church family. It's just really, really cool. So we're glad to have you guys. James Island actually uh, moved to a new location, the Terrace Theater, and opened up two services. So I know it's a big weekend for you guys as well. So we're glad to have you guys. Hey, question. Have you guys ever had an experience or an incident that happened that changed your perspective on everything? Maybe change your perspective on life or maybe change your perspective on something a little bit smaller as well. I had one of those experiences when I got a job as a server in a restaurant. See, before I got a job as a server, I kind of had an idea of what I thought it was like uh, for a server. I mean, how difficult could it be to keep some drinks full? I mean, it seems like a pretty elementary job. Uh, they don't even have to cook the food. They just take your order, keep your drinks full, bring the food out. And you know, it doesn't seem like it could be that, that tough. And then the whole tip thing, I mean, I always tipped because I knew it was you know, the right thing to do. But I thought, man, what a cool deal that you get tips on top of your salary. I mean, that's pretty awesome that you would make, make a good living that way. And um, so, so I tipped and thought, that's cool. Give them something extra. And uh, then my wife and I would often go into restaurants. We like to eat a little bit later, or we did earlier on in our life. And, and so we'd walk in, you know, one, two minutes before closing time and thought, that's normal. You know, it's still open. So that's a good thing. Never fully understood why maybe... Um, servers weren't crazy about that. But, but then I put on the shoes of a server and it changed my perspective on everything. So I'm going to take just a minute and share some things with you that every server wishes that you knew. How many of you have waited tables or you're doing that? You guys have done it? Yeah. So here's the deal. First thing that I learned is that you're not actually the only person that that server is waiting on. It's crazy concept, but they actually have you know, many tables, sometimes eight to 10 tables that they're, they're kind of balancing and juggling. And so can you imagine getting drinks ready and food and keeping everything organized? It's a lot of multitasking. It's a pretty stressful job. In fact, when I used to wait tables, I remember the weeds nightmares that I would have. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced it, but the weeds is sort of when you have way too much stuff to do that you have time to get done. And so I would have these dreams that I would get quadruple sat and they'd all be like 10 top tables. So tons of people and, and they all happen at the same time. And you just, I'm stuck in the kitchen. You can't get out there, but you can feel the glare of those people as they know they're, where are you? What's going on? And so you'd wake up in the sweat and you know, it's stressful, stressful deal. And uh, then the whole tip thing, the first paycheck that I got, I'll never forget it. I, it was two weeks that I had worked and I got a paycheck, opened that bad boy up, seven bucks is what I made <laughs> on that paycheck. Servers don't get, they don't get paid by the restaurant. They get paid like two bucks an hour and it, it covers taxes basically. And so the paycheck is really the only way they get paid is through tips. And so help me understand that the value of that. Then on top of that, they have to actually tip out a percentage of their sales. Usually it's like anywhere from 4 to 7% of your sales, not your tips. You actually tip out uh, to the hostesses and the bartenders and the busboys all make their living on the server's tips. And so if you came into the restaurant and you ordered dinner, and let's say your dinner cost 100 bucks, and it took about an hour and a half, waited on you, and let's just say you tipped 10 bucks, which would be extremely lame, by the way. Don't do that. <clears throat> But on that, on that $10 tip, 
uh, that server is actually tipping out, let's say, 6% of their sales of that $100. They're tipping out 6 bucks out of that $10 tip. And so they're only making $4 on that table. There were times that I would wait on a table uh, for 100 bucks and have a table that didn't leave any tip. And it actually cost me money to wait on that table because I still had to tip out based on the sales. So I learned that, kind of how the financials worked. And it was kind of an interesting deal. And also learned that this kind of surprised me as a pastor's son. I learned that in the restaurant industry, most of those guys don't want to work on Sundays. And it's not because they want to go to church. Uh, <clears throat> see, the church, and this is a generalization, but I found it to be true, and I've talked to many other server friends, but pretty, pretty much the church people are known as bad tippers and relatively rude. Not Seacoast, by the way, it's other churches, right? <laughs> But typically Sundays were a tough day on servers because you had, you know, these people who felt entitled to get, you know, what they, they deserved and typically didn't tip well. And so servers were always trying to, trying to get rid of that shift. And becoming a server changed my perspective entirely. And I will say, since I'm brought it up, Seacoast, and you guys do a good job with this, but tip well. You know, treat your servers well when you go eat. It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to show Jesus to them. And so take an interest in their life. Take an interest in who they are. Don't just expect them to, you know, take care of you. It's a great opportunity to show the love of Christ. And I know Seacos does, does well with that. But, but that perspective changed everything for me. And it changed the way that we interact at restaurants now. It's a good thing. You guys have had perspective-changing experiences as well. Maybe kids, you know, you've all been there where you're in a restaurant and there's a two-year-old that's throwing a temper tantrum on the floor and you thought, you know what, when I have kids, they will never act like that, <clears throat> right? And now that two-year-old's still on the floor and you're going, it's not my kid, you're not, you're not taking ownership of him, uh, but you know, it's happening to you in your own family and we, we've been there for sure. You know, even church, you, know, you can have perspective-changing experiences uh, as it relates to church. We've always said at Seacoast that you'll never really fully understand what Seacoast is about until you've brought a friend with you that's maybe not initiated to church, hasn't been involved in church, maybe doesn't have a relationship with Christ because that will change your perspective. You'll kind of go, oh, okay, maybe that makes a little bit more sense about why they do things the way they do it or whatever. And so it, it, it changes your perspective. So as we go into Easter, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks, I just want to encourage you guys to be praying for about who God's calling you to bring and invite and, and, uh, and show that maybe you'll have that perspective and bring in a friend at Easter. A sports uh, analogy, it happens all the time in sports where let's say your team's in a close game and the refs make a bad call against your team. What do you do? I mean, this is, this is terrible, right? I mean, the ref, what, what do you do? And pay attention to the game. We need instant replay. This has got to change. This is a travesty. But if that bad call goes in favor of your team, it's just part of the game, you know? <laughs> Get over it. Stop whining. It's human. You know, it's how it works. So... Your perspective just changes a whole lot about how we see life and how we see things. And so I'm excited about the series that we're starting. It's called Vantage Point. And here's the goal. We just want to look at the, the Easter story, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus over the next couple of weeks. And we're going to look at it from a couple of different perspectives, from some men and women who actually experienced it, who were there and who lived to tell the story and to talk about it. And I believe that as we do it, it's going to be powerful because we're going to be hearing the gospel and then we're going to be hearing it from some different perspectives that hopefully we'll be able to kind of make some application in our lives and, and uh, be an encouragement to us as we approach this Easter season. So today we're going to actually look at it from two different perspectives. We're going to compare and contrast two different people that experienced 
the Easter story. The first guy is uh, a guy that many would consider to be the greatest leader of the early church. He was bold. He was brave. He was eloquent, influential. Everyone looked to him for guidance when it came to the Christian faith. He wrote books of the Bible. Without him, it's hard to imagine what Christianity would be like without this guy. Incredible leader. He was a powerful preacher to the Jews. He was also the first guy to bring the gospel message to the Gentiles. Uh, This guy was an incredible man. He was Jesus' friend. He was chosen to lead the church once Jesus had left. Most importantly, he understood why Jesus came. He understood why Jesus had to die. And, and he embraced that, and he lived for God. In fact, after he healed a man in the book of Acts, uh, there was a, a lame man that came, and he healed him. And this is what he said. People are kind of you know, giving him all this attention. And he says this in Acts 3.16. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So he deflected the attention. He understood what it meant to really live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit for God. The other guy was one of the biggest embarrassments during Jesus' ministry. He, he was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was always saying the wrong things. He could never figure out what Jesus was talking about. In fact, some of the things that Jesus said to him are indicative of kind of the journey that he was on. One time Jesus preached this message, and you know, great message, and, and this guy came up to him and asked him a question afterwards. And Jesus says, dude, are you dull? You know, that's translated in the Greek, Dude, you're an idiot. You know, that's basically what Jesus said to him. You know, he didn't, didn't quite understand. Wasn't the sharpest guy around. One time Jesus was talking about God's plan, how he was going to have to die at, at the end of the day, and, and he was going to raise from the dead. And, and this guy, this friend of Jesus was like, no, it's not, that's not going to happen. Not if I can help it. I will, I will make sure that that doesn't happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know, I don't know about you, but... I, I've never been called Satan by Jesus. You know, but he he kind of he didn't get it. He said, "Dude, you don't understand what you're thinking in human terms. You don't understand God's perspective." This guy was also a friend of Jesus's, but at the cr- most crucial moment of Jesus's ministry, he panicked and he ran, believing that Jesus and everything he had done had failed. He couldn't figure out what Jesus's true mission was, and in his mind, the death of Jesus was the failure of God's plans. See, that first guy is a guy I would follow. It's a guy I would, I would, I would want to be around. Second guy, not so much. The two guys that I'm talking about, of course, the first guy is Peter, and the second guy is Peter. S- same guy. You know, so so as, as you look at that, something must have happened. You know, something incredible must have happened from his vantage point. To go from this miserable failure who had denied Christ at the end of the day to just 47 days later. It wasn't like years had passed. 47 days later, he's preaching on the day of Pentecost and thousands are getting saved. So we're just going to look into that. What happened? What was the difference for Peter? Because many of us today probably feel like that first guy or or the guy who's striving and trying to make it right, trying to do things. And, And so hopefully we can learn some things today about it. And I would argue that... Peter's perspective changed. His vantage point changed. His, his identity seems to have shifted from getting his value and his purpose out of what he could do for God to getting his value and purpose out of what Jesus did for him. So I want to illustrate it to you guys with a tool. If you guys have your outline sheet, 
there's a triangle up at the top of that outline sheet. And we're just going to kind of talk about identity for a couple of minutes and then we'll make some application. So on the triangle, you've got basically at the, at the top of the triangle, I want you guys to write out the word father. And then down here, we'll write identity, if I can spell that. So when it comes to our identity, who we are, you know, where we, where we get our value, where we get our sense of purpose, where we get our direction for life, our identity has got to come from the Father. It's got to flow down from the Father to us. And that happened through the cross, and that's, that's called grace. That's basically the gospel is that nothing that we did only through what, what Jesus did, what the father did on the cross, he calls us his children. You know, he, he, he gives us our identity as son of God, daughter of God, you know, through what Jesus did on the cross. And then once we've established that, we understand that, man, my identity is in Christ. Then out of that flows obedience so once we have figured out what our identity is in Christ, once we understand that it's because his son died for us, then we discover our, our purpose, we discover our will, God's will for our life, we discover our mission, and we can live lives of obedience, not perfection, but kind of pursuing what God's called us to do. And that's the idea of having our identity in Christ. And what I've found is that Christians make a couple of different mistakes, and non-Christians, we make a couple of different mistakes when it comes to identity. The first mistake that we make is we, we put the wrong person at the top of that triangle. You know, there are a lot of things that, that are identifiers for us. You know, when I think about my life, uh, I'm Lisa's husband, Miles and Greta Kate's dad. I'm Pastor Greg's son. I'm a pastor at Seacoast. A lot of things that, that are identifiers for me. But when any of those things become the source of my identity, the source of my value, then I get things mixed up. Why? Because... If the father is the source of my identity, then it's secure. I'm secure in that because he's already done it. He's already, he's already died on the cross for me. But if, if Lisa's at the top of that triangle, and I'm a pretty, pretty stinking good husband, I'm going to tell you that right now, but <laughs> there are times where I may fall short and where Lisa's perception of me may, may not be at, at the highest regard. And, and as long as my identity rests in someone other than the father, then however they view me, whatever their opinion of me, is sort of where I find my identity. It's an unstable place to live. You know, our kids, we can put our identity in our kids and the problem is they move out and we see this so many times where parents have just got their identity out of their kids and they move out of the house and they, they've lost it. They don't even understand what, what to live for. And it's a difficult transition as it is. But if your kids are at the top of that triangle, it's even more difficult. You know, we can get our identity out of a lot of different things. Maybe even uh, our mission, our our. our vision for our life that God's given us. If we put that as the identity, we get in trouble. Uh, sports teams, you know, we get our identity out of a sports team. Men do this all the time. I feel bad for Gamecock fans because identity crisis all the time, right? <laughs> you know, I say that I'm a Cubs fan. And so if my identity were in the Cubs, April and May, I'm strong, I'm confident, I'm believing, I'm hopeful. And then September, October, it's just life is terrible, miserable, because that's just how it t- seems to work out. You know, we can get our identity out of silly things like how many Facebook friends we have or Twitter followers and all these things that compete to become the top of this triangle. These things compete to, to, to give us our identity. And, and so the most fundamental thing about this, this cross and the most fundamental thing that we're going to even talk about today is that the only place that we can really get our identity from 
is through the Father. You know, he loves each of us so much that he paid the ultimate price. He sent his son to die for us. Not, not because of what we did, but just because of grace. And all we have to do is receive that and we get our identity as a son or daughter of Christ. Second mistake that we make, though, when it comes to this, and this is where Peter comes into play, is we try to work the triangle backwards. See, if you look at Peter's life, and many of us do this, especially the further you get from committing your life to Christ, because you know, initially you understand grace and that's what draws you in. But the further you get, we try to work the triangle backwards. And we, we figure that if, if we're obedient to the Father, if we, if we do well enough, then that will help us get our identity. It'll, it'll secure our standing with Him. You know, and, and what that is, is a word that we like to call legalism. It's when we kind of understand what God's called us to do. We understand God's law. And we, so we start trying to, to, to do that, which is a good thing to obey. But it's not a good thing to try to obey in order to find our identity in Christ because it doesn't work that way. When you live in that world, you're constantly wondering, have I done enough today? You know, ha- have, I, have I checked off enough of the right things? Is, is the good outweighing the bad for me today? And, and that's where we get our standing in, in, with God. And so we have to get the triangle thing right. As we look at Peter's life, you know, Peter, before the cross, if you know much about Peter, he was, initially his name was Simon and he was a fisherman. He owned a fishing business and he started strong. Jesus called him and he sold his business and he kind of sold out. He understood the father thing, that his identity had to come from the father. But he seemed to get mixed up a little bit in that he would try to, try to get good standing with Christ based on what he did. He was constantly in the center of these conversations that the disciples would have about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to be at your right hand in the afterlife. And, and have I done enough to make you proud of me, to make, to make you want me to be right there with you? And it kind of spirals out of control during the Easter season. See, they had the Last Supper, and Jesus told Peter, he said, you know what, you're going to deny me. And, and because it seems that his identity was coming out of his obedience, he couldn't live with that. He was, no, I will not. I don't care if all these guys walk away from you, Jesus. I'm not going to. And then they go to the garden. And Jesus says, stay awake, pray with me. This is a critical hour. And he falls asleep. And then the guards come in to arrest Jesus. And you know, Jesus had been preaching this gospel of love and you know, peace and humility and servanthood. And Peter responds to these guys by acting out in violence and chopping a guy's ear off. And you know, kind of getting aggressive towards him. And, and G- just didn't get it. It's not registering for him. And so he fails again. And then, you know, and, and Jesus' most crucial hour as he's going to the cross, Peter does deny Jesus three times. He caves under the pressure of a teenage girl who comes to him and says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? No, not me. And then the rooster crows and he's, he's failed miserably. And something happens in John 21 where Jesus pulls Peter aside and he addresses this identity issue and this obedience thing. And he says, you know what? You're still with me. And I could tell you that story, but we actually had cameras at the scene. And so I want you guys to see it yourself. Take a look at this quick video. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay. I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish. Okay. But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net. And I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord. And you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, 
Yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good. And, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do now. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, Yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that the, there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Hmm. See, the first thing that he did, one of the first things he did was restore Peter's identity. And I think it was that moment where Peter realized that he could not add anything to what Jesus did for him. He couldn't earn a special favor with him. It was already done for him. And I love that the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. And I like to substitute my name there. Go tell the disciples and Josh. You can put your name, fill in the blank. Because your identity is secure because of what God did. If you receive that, if you accept that. And that's the fundamentals of the gospel. And that's really the major vantage point perspective that we can learn from Peter today. Our identity has to come in Christ. And as we do that, as we kind of understand that and we grab hold of that, I think there are a few things that, that we can kind of notice about our lives when our identity is in Christ and they're on the outline sheet. We're going to kind of go through those for the next couple of minutes. The first thing that I can learn when my identity is in Christ is I recognize that failure is just a layover. It's not a final destination. Failure is just a layover, not a final destination. 
Look in Peter's greatest moment of failure, Matthew twenty six seventy two. Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. See, we can't even read the Easter story without being reminded of Peter's greatest failure. And the truth is, is that failure is not the end of the road. It's not the final chapter in the story. You know, when you go to the airport and they have those self check-in areas, the, the kiosk where you enter the first three letters of your, your destination. When that first came out, I was on a trip with Lisa. We were going to the West Coast and, and I got it wrong. I, I typed in ATL on that because that was the next stop and it couldn't find my ticket because ATL was not my final destination. See, failure is a lot like Atlanta. It's a layover. It's not your final destination, right? I mean, no one stops in Atlanta. It's always a place you go through. Unless you're in sin, then you stay there for a while. But <clears throat> I'm joking. I love Atlanta. But, but layovers can be frustrating, can't they? I mean, sometimes you have long ones. Sometimes you have short ones. Sometimes it's your fault. You know, whether you poor planning or you miss a flight and you end up in, in a longer layover. Sometimes it's something that somebody else did. You know, sometimes it's, it's because of a mechanical issue for the flight or whatever it is, but you have a long layover and they can be frustrating sometimes. But don't ever forget that it's just a layover. You know, failure is a layover. It's not your final destination. It's not where you're supposed to land. When I was 18 years old, I can remember I committed my life to Christ. I grew up in a pastor's home, but I, I kind of rebelled for a long period of time and I committed my life to Christ and shortly thereafter I felt a calling on my life to go into ministry and it was confirmed in several different areas some friends uh, I had a chance to share my testimony a couple of times and kids were coming to Christ and I just knew that God was calling me into ministry and so I took an, an internship here at Seacoast uh, with the student ministries and about nine months into that internship uh, it ended they asked for the keys back I was asked to, to, to leave my position as an intern See, what had happened is I was 18 and there was a girl in the youth group who was 17 and she was really, really beautiful and she was getting ready to graduate from high school, but she hadn't graduated yet and there was a rule that interns couldn't date students. Good rule, by the way, we still have it in place. But I, I didn't have the self-control to wait until she graduated and I began to kind of pursue her in a relationship and, and so I got fired from this internship. Now, the good news is I got the girl and I got the job in the end, so it worked out, um, it worked out, but... <clears throat> But I'm telling you, some of you experience losing your job or some kind of failure like that. Losing your job when you work for your dad, that's a whole nother level of failure. Let me just tell you. <laughs> and so I can remember, like, obviously you have the financial pressure of, of being unemployed, but then just like the label of being unemployed, the label of having been fired or losing your job or failing in this area was just... It was difficult. Several months that I spent trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? What's, what's God calling me to do? So, of course, I was in school and, and continued with my education, but eventually got a job in, in a restaurant, as I talked about earlier. And I actually enjoyed it, was pretty good at it, and began to kind of rise in the ranks of the restaurant that I was at. And, and a couple of years later, had an opportunity to take a, a kind of a training program that would prepare me to open up my own store. And I thought, man, this is cool. I'm, I'm enjoying this. It's definitely stressful, but, but maybe this is what God's called me to do. And I remember getting a phone call from Billy Hornsby, who we've talked about the last couple of weeks. He passed away last week. He was a pastor on staff at our church, and he had been relatively new to the church. 
he called me and he said, Josh, what, I want to have coffee with you. And so I went out to his house and uh, sat down and he just wanted to get to know me a little bit better, asked me to share my story with him. And he asked me to share about my calling. And so I told him, yeah, I definitely felt called in the ministry at one point and I tried that and it definitely did not work out. Uh, but now I'm, I'm kind of in this restaurant thing and maybe, maybe God's calling me to do this and to serve him in another way and have an influence here. But I'm so thankful that Billy looked at me and he said, Josh, I know you failed once, but that doesn't mean you're a failure in ministry. I believe that calling is still there and I want you to, to pursue it. And so he asked me to take a, another internship, offered me $500 a month. Awesome. And, um, and, and I did it. I said, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I went home and prayed with Lisa about it. And I'm so thankful that, that I had someone in my life like Billy to just go, hey, listen, I know you failed, but failure is a layover. It is not your final destination. You don't have to live in that. You don't have to be defined by that. And I imagine that with Peter, it had to be real hard for him. He could easily have settled in the land of failure, taken that on as his identity, understanding that at the greatest moment in history, he failed the worst in his life. And I'm so thankful that Jesus wouldn't let that happen. That that angel, the first thing they said, and I, I wrote the, I put the verse down in your outline sheet, uh, Mark 16, 7, when these women came to the tomb, we've already seen it on video, but the angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There, will be, there you will see him just as he told you. And I love that Jesus wouldn't let him settle there. Jesus wouldn't let him hang out in that failure. He restored his identity. You're still a disciple. Your calling is still secure. Don't go back to your old way of doing things. This is just a layover. And what do I do in a layover? Because many of us are there today. I mean, when, when you have a layover, think about it. In a layover, they refuel, right? I mean, that's part of what you do is refuel. So get in God's word and, and, and try to refuel a little bit. Check for maintenance. You know, maybe the reason that you're in failure is in that, in that layover is, is there maybe something that God's trying to get your attention with, whether it's a sin issue or whether it's, you know, an area that you're not walking with him fully. And so we check for maintenance, rest. You know, take a seat, understand you're there for a short season, rest, and then you get back on the plane, right? You don't live there. You get back on the plane and you, and you keep moving. So failure is a layover. It's not our final destination. What about you? Is there a moment of failure that maybe you've chosen to, to stay in? Some of us have made major mistakes as parents, and you're tempted to label yourself as a failed parent, but you're not. It's, it's a layover. It's not a final destination. Some of us are experiencing major failure in our marriage right now. Maybe you've done something or your spouse has done something and, and you're tempted to call it a failed marriage. We tried and it didn't work. And let me tell you guys, some of the best marriages that we have in this church are people who've been through major layovers, who've had major, major bumps in the road, but who've chosen to get back on the plane and work it out. Maybe you're past that point. Maybe you're, you, you've, you've experienced a failed marriage and you're tempted to to kind of live in that as your identity. And, and I just want to encourage you guys to, to get back in the, on the plane, get back in the game. God's not done using you. God's not done blessing you. He's not done pursuing you because of anything that you've done. There are probably many of us who are single that, you know, maybe you, you knew God's standard for you and purity and, and you blew it and you're tempted to just kind of go, well, I missed that. I, I guess, I guess this is who I am now. I guess I'm going to, I'm going to live in this. And, and God's trying to tell you, he's not done with you. Don't, don't take that on as a label. It's a layover, not a final destination. The second thing that we can learn, and when our identity is in Christ, 
is that we understand that the path to victory usually travels through adversity. The path to victory usually travels through adversity. See, Jesus' death seemed like a total failure to Peter. Not only Peter's failure, but remember, Peter and, and several other disciples had kind of given up on anything else in life to follow him. They put all their eggs in the Jesus basket, and now Jesus is dying. This is not how they thought it was going to turn out. Jesus talked a lot about, I'm establishing my kingdom, and, and, and we're going to reign, and, and then he's, he's going to a cross. What a failure. But in reality, the cross represents victory for all of us. It was God's plan to save the world. God knew that there had to be a cross if there was going to be a resurrection. And that's true in our lives. I think too often in the church, we, you know, we, want, to, we want to see people commit their lives to Christ. And so we paint this picture that if you commit your life to Jesus, all your troubles will go away and life's going to be awesome. The truth is, is that if you look at the disciples and the lives that they lived in the New Testament, in the early church, there was a lot of adversity. Sometimes you commit your life to Christ and things don't go your way. Sometimes you commit your life to Christ and he asks you to do things that you didn't want to do. You know, he asks you to go places that you didn't really want to go. It's not always up and to the right as we pursue Christ. In fact, Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's going to be adversity. And we understand that, right? I mean, we understand that if, if, if a movie's going to be good, we love to watch a good comeback story. That any great, great plot line is going to have adversity. It's going to have the difficult scenes. And we get that. We love to watch Maximus and Gladiator. I love that moment in the ring where he takes his mask off and he, he confronts the king and he wins this victory. And, and we love those moments. But that moment wouldn't have been the same if it weren't for the moments earlier in the movie where he lost his family and where he was sold into slavery and these, these moments of adversity that kind of make the payoff worth it in the end. And we understand that, but we'd much rather skip those scenes when it comes to our own life, right? I mean, we'd rather go straight to the ending, the climax. Who wants to go through hell? I mean, who, who wants to go through adversity. It's okay to watch on a screen, but no one wants that in our own lives. Yet what we have to realize is it's these very moments that make the payoff worth waiting for. It's the scenes that build character. It's the scenes that set us up for the big breakthrough and the big climax. Look at James 1, 2 through 4. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you will know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, all of us would agree, I want my faith to be mature and complete. I want to be a strong Christ. I want to stand, stand for him. But the key to that is in those first part of that verse, is that when we endure trials, which we're going to, that we persevere. That those are the times where our faith is being tested, it's being produced, it's being refined and it's what helps produce mature believers. And so we have to learn to embrace adversity if we're going to follow Christ. That It's the key to the path of victory. The last point is that when our identity is in Christ, we realize that even our weaknesses give God a chance to show off. Even our weaknesses give God a chance to show off. See, the old Peter, one of his weaknesses is that he didn't seem to understand the parables that Jesus was teaching. He, he didn't seem to, to, to get it. The new Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches a message in Acts, and here's what happened. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 
not bad for a guy who doesn't seem to get it, right? That weakness was used as a chance for God to show off. The old Peter caved under the pressure of a teenage girl asking, do you know Christ? No, I don't. Totally crumbled. New Peter, Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, circle that, unschooled and ordinary, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. See, their weaknesses became an, an avenue for God to just show off and to show his power. And they didn't even have to ask if they'd been with him because they could tell. The old Peter constantly putting his foot in his mouth at the most crucial moments the new Peter seemed to live for the crucial moments in the early church as he led through them. And I can imagine every now and then some of the other disciples seeing Peter preaching at Pentecost and going, man, is this the same guy that crumbled? But it's those weaknesses that God chose to use for his glory. Paul said it well in 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The church is really good at hiding our weaknesses, right? I mean, that's what we, we tend to learn to do is just hide behind our weaknesses or hide, hide them. But what... What we can learn when our identity is in Christ is whatever those weaknesses are, God can use them for his glory. So I don't know what weaknesses you came in knowing you have. Maybe it's a personality deal, similar to what Peter was talking about. We talked about with Peter, he's this guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth and, and God turns that around and uses it as boldness to lead the church. You know, maybe it's a financial deal and, and you're financial, you're just weak right now. You've lost a job or you, you're, you know, you've been hit by the economy. There was a guy, young business guy, who was doing really, really well, making millions of dollars. And what he thought was a strength was actually a weakness. And he kind of got a little arrogant with it and overinvested and got spread too thin. And eventually it all came crumbling down and he went bankrupt in his 20s. Total weakness. You know, I'm glad for my sake, because this is a guy who's influenced my family. I'm glad that he didn't stop there and just say, well, I guess this is a weakness for me. I guess I'm not going to do it. How many of you are glad that Dave Ramsey chose to allow God to use that weakness and that failure in his life and now he's helping millions of people learn how to be good stewards of their money, learn how to manage their money. God's taken that weakness and used it as a strength. Some of it's a health issue. Some of you may be going through a major health issue and you would, you would call that a weakness. And you're praying for God to heal you and I would encourage you to keep praying for God to heal you. We've seen him do it so many times, but maybe add another prayer to that. God, in my weakness here, in my struggle, would you use that for your glory? Maybe, maybe, would you just use this to maybe inspire somebody else? Again, I think about Billy in these last couple of weeks of his life as he struggled to, to, with his health. It was a major weakness and hundreds of pastors came in to see him, to encourage him, to pray for him, to try to lift his spirits a little bit. And the opposite happened. You know, he lifted theirs. You know, he used that weakness to to help me understand that there's no fear in death, to, to, to inspire people to live for him. And so I don't know what the weakness is that you came in dealing with, but God wants to use that for his glory if we'll just put it in his hands and give it to him. So that's the message. Really, it's, it's two parts. One is this whole triangle deal, and we've got to settle that. 
you know, there may be some of us that are here today and, and we've never really made that decision. We've, we've always been trying to get our identity in, in something other than, than God. We've been seeking to kind of fill this imprint that he's put on our lives with, with other things. And it's led to kind of an unstable identity. And I would encourage you, if that's you today, just to, to resolve that, to understand that there's nothing you can do to add to what he's already done. He did it because he loves you. He did it because he wants you to be a child of his. And it's as simple as just, you know, whispering a prayer saying, God, I understand what you did on the cross. I understand that Jesus rose from the dead. And Lord, I want to be a part of your family. I want to receive that. I know I've got sin in my life. I just want to receive that. And if that's you, I just encourage you to do that. And as we respond to him in a few moments, you may even want to go to the cross and just write your name on a piece of paper and say, son or daughter of God, I'm settling the identity thing today. And then failure, adversity, weakness, things that all of us deal with from time to time, and many of us are dealing with right now, when our identity is in Christ, when we truly identify with him, he can use those things to propel us into the future that he's got for us. Would you guys pray for me? Or with me? Pray for me too. God, we love you. God, we thank you uh, for what you did that Easter many years ago. Lord, that's why we're here today. Because you willingly went to the cross for us. Because you conquered death. You took the sting out of death. Lord, you were raised from the dead. You've established your kingdom here on earth, God, and we thank you so much for that. Lord, I thank you that today there will be many of us that are going to make that decision to to get our identity in you. Lord, to receive the gift that you've given today. And Lord, we celebrate with them. God, we, and we, we just thank you that you've made a way for us to have a relationship with you, to be children of yours through the cross. And God, I pray for many of us that are here today, God, who are maybe dealing with failure. Lord, maybe uh, we, we've been living in a layover of failure and, and we've we've believed that that was it for us. We believe that that was going to define us, God. And I just pray, Lord, today that you would encourage us if we're there today. Lord, remind us that it's, it's just a season. Lord, and that there's victory in you. Lord, that you, you want to continue to use us. Lord, you're not done. Lord, for those of us that are going through adversity today, I just pray for a, a, a healing touch from your Holy Spirit, God, that would just uh, give us the strength to endure, give us the strength to persevere, give us the strength to honor you in the midst of the adversity that we're facing right now. And Lord, just encourage our hearts and our weaknesses. Lord, we offer them to you. Lord, we offer the little that we have and we just pray, Lord, that you would use that to just show people who you are. Show people that you love to use our weaknesses to display your power and your glory. God, we love you. It's such an awesome privilege to be a part of your family to serve you, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.